You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast featuring some of Indiana's most fascinating men and women whose impact has shaped our state, our communities, and us. Join us as we discuss their imprint on our history. Leaders and Legends is brought to you by Veteran Strategies Incorporated, your local veteran business enterprise specializing in public relations, media relations, public outreach, crisis communications, and digital photography. My name is Robert Bain, Principal of Veteran Strategies, former Deputy Chief of Staff to Mayor Greg Ballard, and Communications Director for the Indiana Republican Party. I'm honored to be your host for our discussion. We are here and joined by Mark Allen, legendary local journalist and world-renowned Seinfeld expert. (laughs) We plan to talk a lot about music and Seinfeld and Mark's background and how he came to Indianapolis and all things Indianapolis culture. He currently works at Butler University, and we couldn't be more pleased. Thank you, sir. It's good to be here. Thanks. So the four, the Mount Rushmore of Seinfeld episodes. If you had to choose four, I'm not dicking around. We're getting right to the heart okay, of the matter. Okay, we're going right to it. The, the opposite. The opposite. Uh, the pool guy. Let's see. Uh, boy, you really, you can't, you started off strong there. You don't bury the I'm lead on this show, Mark. <laughs> don't you know that? Yeah. Let me think. Let me think. Uh, I'll, we'll come back to it. But uh, yeah. Okay. So let me think if I could be helpful yeah, here. Yeah, see if you can be helpful. Uh, Fusilli Jerry is my favorite episode because mm-hmm. it's putty. Uh, <laughs> actually, the dealership would be another putty episode. I know. You love the dealership. It's the de- not. <laughs> it's okay. But it's, it's, I don't think it's in the Mount Rushmore. Uh, that's the burning which is another putty episode yeah. that's got the great one where he's believes in God and Elaine can't handle it. <laughs> Dumb and stupid. I understand or whatever it is. Uh, um, and then my sleeper episode would be the Andrea Doria. The Andrea Doria is a great episode that, that belongs in there too. Yeah. What about like the puffy shirt? Puffy shirt's a good one. I mean, there's there, they hit their rhythm what about six, seven shows in and they kept it going pretty close to the end. The last season's a little rough, but Oh, I, you know, what am I thinking of here? Okay. So, so, uh, the Festivus episode, the, you know, the strike, the strike, the strike, mm-hmm. that's it. And the Merv Griffin show. That's one of my other favorite, <laughs> favorite ones. The rye. Yes. <laughs> the marble rye is great. <laughs> so what made you now you're originally from New York city. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. And so was it, was Seinfeld familiar to you because of that? Or you just love the characters? What made you, uh, my, my kids are gigantic Seinfeld freaks and that's just, I hope, like are. to think, I like to think good parenting. <laughs> um, once my son, uh, Andrew and my daughter, Anna met, uh, Mark at uh, a restaurant so we could play clue Seinfeld. That's right. And, uh, and Andrew, Andrew won. <laughs> Andrew did win. Your daughter was there, as I recall. That's right. That's and both right. of our daughters were mortified that we're playing <laughs> Clue Seinfeld in a public spot where people could see us. Well, and and uh, Andrew introduced himself to me. He said, hi, my name is Andrew. I'm unemployed and I live with my parents. <laughs> <laughs> he did. And then I remember once on your birthday, I had my daughter text you, happy birthday, Mark, drop dead. <laughs> That's right. That's right. <laughs> What about the show? I mean, there's, it, it's certainly a top five comedy of all time. You'd have to say yeah. seminal '90s show. 
Uh, you're from New York City. What about the show turned you on? And besides just the general fact that it's extremely well written and creative, it's just so um, I don't know, silly. Maybe it's uh, you know I never liked Seinfeld the comedian. I don't think he's funny. And um, when he would come on a talk show, I would turn the talk show off. And I didn't watch Seinfeld for, I think, three or four seasons. And Steve Hall, who was my predecessor as the TV critic at The Star, said, you got to watch this show. And I'm like, no, I don't want to watch Seinfeld. (laughs) But anyway, we were supposed to be out one night. And this was when Seinfeld was on on Wednesday nights. And we came home early. It was on. And we watched it. And thought, wow, this is really funny. I really miss this. Do you and remember which episode? Watching, I don't, I don't. But it was great. I mean, it, you just, it, it was probably something where they were writing the the Jerry sitcom. It feels like, but I but I could be wrong about that. Did who's your favorite non main character? Um, you're talking about like somebody who had a recurring role or somebody who just was on once. Recurring role. Recurring role. I mean, because if it's just on once, then that's obviously Marissa Tomei. Like, we get that. Well, <laughs> Marissa, yeah. She, she does, I, you know, I think I've told you, I, I asked, I met her, mm-hmm. and I asked her, do you really like short, stocky, uh, bald men? And she was great. I mean, she just, she, she laughed, and she just went, that will forever remain a mystery. <laughs> <laughs> Great, great line. But, you know, the recurring characters. I mean, uh, obviously, other than Putty's great. Um, Putty over uh, Frank Costanza. Frank, Frank's pretty wild. <laughs> Did you ever see the episode where where it's not uh, Jerry Stiller? Yeah, it's um, I forget the name of the guy, but there's a great yeah. outtake or not an outtake, a documentary part of that where they wanted they wanted Frank Costanza to basically be you know, uh, craven and, and put upon and basically bullied right. by uh, Estelle and that Jerry Stiller, when he was doing the part, just decided one time to just start screaming back at her. <laughs> and Larry David immediately goes, that's it. Yep. Yes, that's it. Uh, so I mean, the, so Newman, the show tell doesn't re- I love Newman. And you have a Newman story. Go a ahead Newman and tell it. Story. I'm, so I met uh, Wayne Knight and I said, I said, where is the the most unusual place that you were? Hello, Newman. And he said, in the Vatican. And he was, uh, and uh, forgive me because I don't remember the details of it, but he's walking up some staircase and, and uh, there and he's feeling, you know, he's kind of alone with his thoughts. And mm-hmm. somebody comes up to him and says, hello, Newman. And that's just, <laughs> I, I love it. I had a lot of, uh, you know, cause I, because I was a TV critic at the paper and I used to go out to California once a year or sometimes twice. Um, I would meet a lot of people who had recurring roles or one time roles in Seinfeld. And it was just really fun because those people, you know, I, I my favorite one was, um, uh, I'm blanking on the actress's name and she's married to, Boy, my memory is not what it used to be. But anyway, her, she well, played. Well, you didn't Lisa. grow up in the 70s, Mark. <laughs> I grew up in the 60s. <laughs> uh, she played Lisey uh, on the episode where uh, um, the sentence finisher. Right. Remember her? So, right. And her name is Julia Campbell. 
Yes, now I'm remembering it. And so um, I was talking to her husband, whose name is Jay Carnes, and he was uh, one of the uh, characters on um, on The Shield. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if you ever watched that, but he played uh, Dutch on The Shield. And so he he we're having a nice chat, and his wife comes up, and so he introduces me, and, and I said – and I just blur it out and I go, you played Lisey on Seinfeld. And they're both looking at me like, uh-oh, this guy's insane because like they don't remember the character's name and I do. And, so, you know, you, you, you yeah. read that a lot in, in magazines, whether it's um, rock stars or, or TV or movie stars, where they'll come up and say, hey, you remember so-and-so and so-and-so? And uh, there's, a, there's a great story uh, when Eddie Van Halen met Tommy Iommi from Black Sabbath. Tony Iommi. Tony, yeah, Tony. Tony. That's right. Yeah. Tony. That's what I thought. Forgive me. Yeah. I misspoke. And uh, Van Halen's first tour, they were on with Black Sabbath. And Van Halen goes up to him and starts saying, you remember this song on this side of this album and you played it this way? And <laughs> and Ami was like, I have no idea what you're talking about. Yeah. Like, you're yeah. kidding me, right? And that the... And, and then Van Halen said later on, as he when he got famous, people would do that to him. And he's like, "I played what on what side of what album? I don't know what you mean." Yeah. So the fact that the we you know those of us who are fans go up to stars and people, I'm like, "You remember that one time?" And they're like, "You know what? I've done 400 episodes of that show. I don't have any idea what you're talking about." Well, it's it's like that famous Shatner bit, right? About uh, you know, it was just a job. Get over it. Oh, right? those Saturday Night Live but, skits. Yes, but I but have it, any of you even kissed a girl? Right. Exactly. But I, you know, I, I mean, and that's, that's true. Uh, Like I met Jason Alexander and I, he had, he was just putting out this show called Bob Patterson, which is the first thing he did after Seinfeld. And there were at least five sign clear Seinfeld references in the first episode of Bob Patterson. So I, I said, uh, you know, I said to him, you know, it, I mentioned that to him and he's looking at me and he's giving me the stink eye. I think mm-hmm. it was the stink eye, but he's looking at me and, 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 and like, he just, he can't think of the references. And I, and then I saw him later this, that same day. And I said, you know, you were giving me this funny look. And he said, he said, just because I can't remember the moments that you're talking about. And that's it, you know, for them, for a lot of them, it's a job. Yeah, that's right. And that's what you forget, right? It's like, they don't, they don't live it the way we live it as fans. And they probably don't see the same episode. Right. They're not going to watch the 15 same to 20 times. Yes. I mean, I can't tell you how many times I've seen like Festivus. Well, my kids and I watch it every year on December 23rd for the past 12 years. Right. That's just 12 times. Uh, you have another, uh, as I recall, Seinfeld cast encounter, if you want to share that. Let's see which one. I believe she signed something for you. She signed something for me. Can you be a little more specific? (laughs) Uh, She had an unfortunate (laughs) encounter with some uh, stamps or envelopes. Excuse me. Oh, yes, yes, yes. I have uh, Heidi Swedberg's autograph. So Heidi Swedberg, who played Susan, and I didn't meet her, but my sister, who was working for uh, an artist manager out in L.A., um, and they handled her. And so she came up to uh, she was up in the the offices and my sister said my 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 brother's a big Seinfeld fan well would you mind signing this and would you sign it you can stuff your saris in a sack mister <laughs> and Heidi Swedberg looked at my sister and said why would I do that and she said because you said it on the show and Heidi Swedberg said I did 
And, you know, it's just those things, these things mean way more to us than they do to the, to the actors, you know, you, you mentioned, uh, growing up in New York city, uh, talk a little bit how you ended up in Indianapolis. Cause, cause I do want to ask you some questions about growing up in New York city, sure. the big city in the world, especially at the time. Yeah. How did you end up here? Uh, for a job. So basically, you know, I, I was a newspaper reporter and, Back in the day, you would start at a small paper. So I started in Massachusetts at a small paper, and then I moved to Pennsylvania to another paper, you know, slightly bigger. And you just, the idea is to keep moving up in circulation and ideally in salary. So, uh, but circulation was really the most important thing. So I was in um, grad school, and then I got a job in New York at a paper in the, outside of New York City. And I was looking for for work, and uh, I applied to the Indianapolis Star. Basically, I would go home, and whenever I was in a bad mood, I would <laughs> I would take out um, the editor and publisher yearbook, which had the listings of every newspaper in the country, and I would look at the circulation, and I would go, "Okay, I want to be in the one of the top hundred circulation play, uh, papers." So. Uh, and I would just start typing and like five hours later and I'm not exaggerating, that, mm -hmm. you know, and I would send out 20 cover letters and clips and things like that. And one night, um, actually I had, by that point I had moved back that I was living in Springfield, Illinois and the editor, the city editor, the star Dennis royalty called me and said, uh, we've got an opening. Why don't you come in and interview? And, uh, you know, I'd only ever been through Indianapolis and, uh, Came here for the interview on a Saturday and got the job. What was your first, what were you hired to do when you came uh, here? A police reporter. So really? Covered, so what year uh, is this? 1988. Started January 4th, 1988. Is that, how close is that to, was it Michael Taylor? Uh, Michael Taylor I was in the military. Happened. I was gone, but. Michael Taylor had happened and um, uh, the, the guy who. Uh, people guy. don't know my, correct yeah. me if my memory fails me, but Michael Taylor was in the back of a police car handcuffed, I believe. Right. And, and, and got shot, shot himself. And, and there's a big to do on whether he was executed or actually had a gun and committed suicide. Right. Right. Uh, Michael Taylor, it happened. Uh, Fred Sanders, I think either. Oh, who happened, shot and killed uh, uh, Faber. Matt Faber. Matt right. Faber. Um, that had ha or that was go I think happened shortly after I got here. Um, the first one, the first murder that happened was about, I don't know, four or five weeks into my job. And I was, it was a day off for me. So, <laughs> um, you know, so I had kind of like been sitting in the police. Uh, we had a, an office in the police station in, in the city county building. And I would, uh, you know, sit there and listen to the police scanner and, and, uh, you know, when there Did were you bequeath stores, that scanner to Reichert, to Vic Reichert, when he <laughs> took over? Mister, I think there were people b between us. Vic, but, you, you may know. not be listening to this ever, but you're the king of the 1045 in the evening phone call. Just <laughs> FYI. How did you, uh, where'd you go to college? Uh, Emerson College in Boston. Boston. And, um, and then I went back to school for um, a master's at uh, what was then Sangamon State University in Springfield, Illinois, and uh, is now called the University of Illinois at Springfield. Did uh, you work as the police reporter long? How did you end up as the entertainment critic, TV slash music? So when I wasn't doing police and stuff on my off time, I would write for the arts sections of the star. They had the weekend section and the Sunday uh, section 
which are both sadly gone from the paper. And, uh, and so when a job came open, they, they, they created a job for just a general assignment arts writer and they gave it to me. And, um, is that a job you had wanted? I mean that yeah, you, you preferred I mean, to write about that? Oh yeah. I mean the, the worst concert beats the best homicide <laughs> point uh, taken. Did, did it take you a while to get your handle on Indianapolis as an arts city coming from New York city? I mean, that's obviously that's especially back then the difference was Canyon esque now, maybe not so much, but, but, Back then, I mean, did you bring the Pauline Kale New Yorker sort of attitude to fly over country? Well, I brought probably a more critical view than most people were used to. I mean, my predecessor, Jill Warren, who's a friend of mine, um, you know, it was pretty easygoing on the things. And I'm not, you know, I just, I, if I think it stinks, I'm going to say it stinks, you know, and people were free to disagree with me and boy, did they, I mean, I wish I had thought of it. I would have brought my, uh, my stack of mail because, <laughs> you know, back then I kept every letter anybody ever wrote me as long as, as it was signed. Um, you know, and I would always open the, the envelope cause you had to write a letter, an actual right. physical letter and get an envelope and a stamp. And I always thought, you know, if people take the time to do that, then they deserve to be read and stuff. But I want to make sure it's signed. I don't want to read some anonymous person, you know, writing me nasty stuff. So, um, so I kept it and I have a file and it's, it's probably, I don't know, six, seven inches of mail. You know, some of it's positive, a lot of it's negative, and uh, and I always kept that. Uh, you know, and, and and the typical things were, you know, there were eighteen thousand people there who loved it. Where concert were you at? You know, and, uh, <laughs> I was at the same concert you were, but I didn't pay for it, and I wasn't there to to enjoy myself. I was there to write. You know, did I think this was a good show? You know, if and my my um, uh, my approach was. If I were an intelligent fan of this group, would I be happy with this performance? And that's, you know, the other people, people go to shows to enjoy it and they pay their money and, you know, enjoy it. I'm glad you enjoyed it. I'm there to be critical of it or to explain why I think it's good or not good. Let's get into music a little bit, because sure. um, that's obviously where I would see your byline in the star. And I didn't go to many concerts you know, cause they weren't cheap, but you know, really I would have to say that I saved my money for Melon Camp, Rush, Van Halen. I did see Ted Nugent once and that was an experience because you little, it was so, I hate to say this is maybe as, I don't know the word counterintuitive or it, the mute, the, the sound was so loud. I couldn't hear the music. Like yeah. it was so unbelievably loud. You just really couldn't differentiate between parts of the songs. There are shows like that. Nugent was always very, very loud. Um, Pantera was probably the loudest show I ever saw, but that was really a good show. Um, Eminem was another one I saw that I just was like, wow, you could turn this down halfway and it would still be blistering. Um, <laughs> and the Ramones were famous for being loud, but you know, I mean, it, it, it's a little different seeing somebody who's loud in an arena versus loud in a club. I mean, and when I saw the Ramones, I mean, they were mostly in a theater. So who did you see? So you say you grew up in the 60s, 70s, well, right? When did you yeah, graduate from high school? 70, 76. Okay. So 
who did you see in New York City? I mean, you're lucky enough that everyone plays New York City, yeah. right? I mean, you know, you don't always get McCartney coming through Indianapolis, even though right. next this year later it'll be in Fort Wayne. But who did you see where you're like, oh my God, I can't believe I'm in front of these guys? Because I would imagine that you had a chance to see just about everyone. Yeah, I mean, I, I saw, uh, you know, I, like I'm probably one of the few people who's seen Zeppelin and Nirvana, you know. Um, <laughs> Uh, but do you feel like the concerts, you know, the seventies are known as kind of the era of arena rock and concert and these monster albums and these incredible acts. I mean, probably too many to name Zeppelin, who Pink Floyd, yeah, later Van Halen, Fleetwood I mean, Mac, Eagles. Yes. Rush. I'm um, old enough to have seen stones. I saw the who with, uh, with Keith moon and, uh, I saw the wall Pink Floyd do the wall. And that was only, the original concert was only in New York and Los Angeles and London. So, so that was good. And Any of those stand out in particular that you, which Zeppelin tour did you see after which album or how many uh, times did you see him? Isn't it more than I only saw him once. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was, uh, 1976. I think it was. So physical graffiti or presence. Uh, I'm trying to remember. I'm not, and I'm, I'm thinking houses of the holy actually. Okay. So did you, was there anything about what you saw in the seventies with all these fantastic concerts that made you think, man, I want to be involved with this somehow. Like part of me wants to be involved with playing, writing, singing. However, I couldn't play. I was terrible and I could sing a bit, but I couldn't maintain my voice. I, I like, I mean, I had a good enough voice that I was an all County choir when I was Mm -hmm. in ninth grade, but um, when I would sing for any length of time, I would lose my voice. So I did not have that kind of control. So, I mean, I wanted to write about it and I always did write about it from the time. I mean, I was probably in high school. I would even write pretend reviews of things. Really? Yeah. Just to, just to try it out and see what it was like, you know, to be a critic. And then, um, uh, you know, I, but the thing is like uh, the small papers that will hire you, they won't. They they don't have a music critic, so you could write on your own on your mm-hmm. own time and everything. They'd be happy to to have that, and so I would do that. But it wasn't until I came to the Star. The Star was the first paper I had that uh, that I went to that uh, had a music critic. And as a fan, you know, you decide you like this much is this much money is worth this much entertainment, right? Uh, McCartney cost uh, three hundred dollars. That was how much I paid for my. My ticket, my kid's ticket. Uh, so it was a $900 night. And, you know, to me, it was worth every penny. I mean, what are the odds he ever comes back here? Yeah. My kids can talk smack in 40 years that they saw a Beatle play a Beatles song, mm-hmm. you know, in person. And that's not a lot of people are going to be able to say that. Uh, but as a critic, and you have to go, how do you steal your mind to go, all right, I never, I wouldn't pay $3 to go to this concert, <laughs> but I've got to go as a professional. I mean, Talk about that. Like, how do you do it? Go to a band or an act that you can't possibly imagine paying for and try to be judicious and objective. Well, if I couldn't be fair, I wouldn't go. I mean, there are acts I could not be fair to. I don't name, you know, um, uh, John Denver, Kenny G, (laughs) Janet Jackson. um, You just didn't find anything about their work appealing. No. And I, and you know, I did review Janet Jackson once and I just found her, I just hated it. I mean, 
I hated everything about it. It just seems so fake to me. Well, there's certainly and, some catchy songs. So it's just a production or yeah, it was, it was just, I mean, she cried on cue and it was so obviously fake. And you knew that she cried at that moment at every show. And I just thought there, there's nothing genuine about this. I can't watch this. And then there are just people whose music I really dislike. I mean, John Jackson has some fine songs. I just don't did not like her on stage. Did you ever just um, ask? Did you ever see Michael Jackson? Did, I, I never did see Michael Jackson. No, no. He when he played here, it was before I was the critic, and he never played here again. So. Are you were you scared that Kenny G would just be too loud, <laughs> too rough? I, you know, uh, the thing is, I I did review Kenny G once, and I gave him a very good review because he did play a good show. It, again, if I were a fan of that, and thank God I'm not. But if I were a fan of that, I would go, yeah, I'd be happy with that performance. I mean, he works hard at it. He give, gives people a broad uh, spectrum of his music. I don't happen to like that music. But, you know, that's that's fine. But I can't go there and go, oh, he's really a, quite a musician. I mean, he, he maybe he's great, at what, he's great at what he does. I just can't stand what he does. Because your point was like, look, if people came to hear these songs played mm-hmm. this way with this demeanor, they were happy. But yeah. if you were dragged here because you weren't necessarily a fan, then you probably walked away struggling. Yeah, yeah. There was a, an old episode of the Mary Tyler Moore show where, where uh, Ted does something good and and uh and murray says to him something about uh you know when a donkey flies you don't blame him for not staying up in the air very long and uh, <laughs> and that's sort of you know my feeling it's like if you were you know you I could probably watch you once, but if I really detested what you do, you know, and I can't be fair to you. I don't, I don't want to write about you. It's not, it's not fair to the fans. It's not fair to the artists. And who, who did you, when they were coming through, like, okay, I can't believe I get to see this show for free. And I actually get paid to watch these people. Not, oh, not me paying. Why? You know, most of most of the time, little feet was my favorite band. And so, um, so it was always a treat. Uh, although the last time I saw them, they weren't very good. Um, Springsteen, you know, I grew up an enormous, enormous Springsteen fan. And uh, so there was there was that. And, you know, uh, it was and then there were artists like, you know, who were great in concert, whose music I don't particularly like, like Billy Joel. I've never been a fan of. And really, even Billy though Joel, I mean, you must have really grown up with Billy Joel there in New well, York City. Well, I grew up in Long Island and so did Billy Joel. So he's a few years older than I am. But but, you know, I never grew up a fan of his music at all. But I mean, the guy puts on just one great show. You got to love that that performance. I mean, he works his tail off for the audience. Um, and Elton John is the same way. I don't like Elton John particularly. And actually, the one time I saw Elton John to review him, I didn't give him a particularly positive review because I didn't think he was there. I mean, mm-hmm. he was performing the songs, but I it, it, he could have been performing them anywhere. You just you had no feel. He had no feel for where he was. I felt like, um, and so you know, those are some of the things that I that I would judge people on. And, um, and I think that's the only way you can be fair to people. You know, you don't have to love their music, 
But if you can appreciate what they do and the work that they put into it, then you can at least give them, you know, the review that they deserve. Did you find yourself paying attention to particular parts of the concert? Like, you know, if the drummer drummer was particularly good or, or the guitarist or, or the, if it's just the singer blows you away. I mean, is it, do you focus on one part of it because this person, I mean, obviously I would have to say, for example, you know, if well, it's Aerosmith is a good example of that. I mean, you're paying attention to Steven Tyler, you're paying attention to Joe Perry, and then you got three guys who are standing there like, you know, a pigeon could land on them <laughs> and, and they wouldn't move, you know? I mean, so you're not paying attention. And those guys are very good at what they do. But, you know, I mean, Steven Tyler is what you're paying attention to. Joe Perry is what you're paying attention to. Do you find yourself a big Stones fan? I'm a big Stones fan. Are you yeah. going to, you want to weigh in on the Stones, Beatles? Um, I'm more of a Stones guy than a Beatles guy because I, the Stones are dirtier. And, and I, I don't know, I don't know any other way to put it than that. I mean, I, I love both of them, but I, but I, you know, if, if I had my druthers, you know, I'd be listening to Beggar's Banquet. So as opposed to Abbey Road, um, I, I, the second side of Abbey Road, I think is just absolute genius. I mean, I, you know, I listen to that quite often. Who were the musicians that you saw, whether it's reviewing or in person, who just really are like, I, where the talent is so overwhelming? You and actually, you and I have been to a few concerts together, not many, yeah. but a few, yeah. where you just look at them and go, you just, it's, it's incredible that you could be so damn good at what you do as X is. Yeah. I mean, uh, there's, there's lots of them. Uh, let me think, uh, you know, the first person that comes to mind is like Steve Vai, where you watch the guitar that player. and you just go, how do you do that? You know, how does anybody learn to do that and and to invent it in certain ways? I mean, Eddie Van Halen, I know you you always think that I that I was hypercritical of Van Halen and probably was, but... but I never you thought know, you were critical of Eddie Van Halen. No, I was certainly not critical of Eddie Van Halen. I mean, you know, you just watch that and go... Geez, how do you do that? I mean, Jimmy Page, um, people like that. You just... I, I remember being overawed by Getty Lee. Mm-hmm. I had really good seats to a Rush concert 20 feet away from Getty Lee one time. And he's he's playing the bass pedals and he's playing the keyboards and he's singing. And then he goes into a solo on his actual bass guitar and then goes right back to what he was doing before. It's just, it's a phenomenal amount of talent. Um, you um, saw John Bonham live. Yes. Do you remember that? What it was... Because he was this, this, I guess, along with Moon, but I think Bonham is regarded as the uber drummer of rock and roll. Yeah, I mean, because nobody can do what Bonham does. Although, <laughs> did you see that video of that eight-year-old girl yes. playing Bonham? Mm-hmm. I mean, good times, bad times. That's mm-hmm. that's hilarious. It's just great. But um, uh, you know, Bonham was was amazing. I mean, it, Bonham loved his snare drum, and he would just you know snare and hi hat. He was all over that, but. Um, you know, Keith Moon, that was, that was certainly one of the most powerful exhibitions of drumming. I mean, you know, this side of Kenny Aronoff and stuff, uh, there, there are a lot of really great musicians and it was, I, I grew up in the right time. I mean, I got to see them. So. Well, we saw Stanley Clark and now Demiola together. Oh, that's right. That's You're just right. like. Yeah. These guys don't even look like they're trying and it's beyond comprehension sometimes. Yeah. I mean, you look at that and you go. 
poor Lenny White. And Lenny White's like <laughs> so amazing. And he's like the fourth best musician on the stage. And you just, I mean, I saw, I saw Carl Palmer from Emerson Lake and Palmer play at, Oh, at the um, noodle at the noodle. That's yes. Right. And, and uh, to see Carl Palmer in that little room, Drummer. I mean, it's scary how strong he is and how powerful he's drumming. And I'm watching him and he's got a young guitar player and a young bass player. And they were all both really phenomenal players. And I'm, again, I'm thinking, you know, that poor bass player, he's, he's the third best player <laughs> on this stage. How terrible, what does that feel like? Whose, whose voice? Uh, I've been actually listening to a lot of Zeppelin lately and there, there's some songs where, where plant just sounds, I hate to say angelic, I think very few people could go from, you know, demon to angel like he could and back and forth, especially songs like uh, 10 Years Gone and others like that. But whose who's voice in rock and roll specifically did you just be like, you just got to be kidding me. What an absolutely beautiful voice, especially to hear it in that genre. Well, I and I don't know if beautiful is the word, but Paul Rogers, you know, Bad Company mm-hmm. and or not, not Bad Company, but Free. And, uh, and bad company. and bad company. That's right. Yeah, I mean, I always thought, boy, he he could just uh, they came right up from the cojones you know, right? <laughs> into his throat. That was he's got an amazing, amazing voice. Um, you know, Plant's voice is a delicate instrument, and sometimes live was not what it you know what it should be. Um, you know, and and that happens to everybody, I guess. You know, it's very rare that you can be you know, in, in your sixties and such, and still hitting the high notes. Sure. Um, Elton John specific. I mean, he just talked about it. Like there's certain songs I can't play anymore because I'm not going to be playing Benny and the jets. <laughs> like it's 1978 anymore. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, what about, yeah. let me get, throw another name out there. Cause I actually was listening to music yesterday. Uh, Ann Wilson from heart. Yeah. Never been a big fan of but, heart but, or yeah, her either, but, but yeah, I mean, she can sing. I mean, Pat Benatar. Never, never was a fan, and I'm not. Sh- I I don't know if I saw her live. I mean, it's not ringing a bell. Who's a, what's what's what would be the most surprising band on your iPod, where um, people would be like, I didn't see that coming. Uh, I'll confess, know. mine would be DeBarge. <laughs> I'm a huge DeBarge fan. They've got they actually they have a phenomenal bass player, and unlike yeah. unlike today's yeah. horrid. Um, rap music or whatever you want to call it. That's just atrocious where they just have abandoned all instruments that makes you go back to, uh, earth, wind and fire and uh, cool in the gang and stuff like that, where they actually played the guitar. They played these instruments yeah. and they had these terrific, uh, and they were great. Yeah. Terrific musicians. I'm trying to think of the guy who played for sting for a while. A black guy, the guitarist played the solo on sting's version of little wing. That was just absolutely beautiful, but it's not Greg. But, Gaines, is no, it? and I'll yeah. think of it here in a second, but it's, uh, that sort of, but DeBarge and, and Earth, Wind and & Fire and Cool and the Gang, kind of, I grew up in the 70s and 80s, you know, that's the music that people would be like, we just went from Rush and War Pigs to Who's Holding Donna Now? <laughs> <laughs> Who would it be for you? Who would it be? I mean, A, I should tell you, I never had an iPod and I don't have any music on my phone. I still listen. You to don't? C- I don't. I still listen to CDs when I'm listening. Well, I've driven, I've ridden past you on bikes before. Are you just not listening to anything? I know. I don't listen to anything. No, I just, when I'm riding my bike, I'm just thinking of, you know, not crashing into any, <laughs> anybody or anything. Um, but you know, I, 
who, who if we're at your house, if the, if the millions of people listening right now, <laughs> and we're here with Mark Allen, former music critic, TV critic for the Annapolis Star, now works at Butler University. Uh, if we're at your house for a party and you put something on, that what would make the crowd go, oh my, that's a knuckleball? Uh, when people come over, I usually try to put on something pretty general that people would like. And I think so. I probably put on the Beatles or the Stones or the Beach Boys or something. Beach Boys fan? Uh, no, not really. But, <laughs> but I feel like you're a good host. But yeah, I feel like you know everybody sort of likes the Beach Boys, and then so why not? Did uh, you mentioned writing critical pieces, yeah. critical reviews? Safe to say that you heard from these artists. <laughs> About your review, or do they just like, I'm making millions and I've got 10 girls in my room and I don't care what Mark Allen thinks? Uh, yeah, I heard from a bunch of them, and it was sort of like I had this very Forrest Gump existence, you know, as a critic where I would just go, How am I in the middle of this? Why Why do you care what I think? You well, know, you the, want the, a story? The, yes, I'll tell I said the story. listeners of Leaders and Legends want a story from you because you've interacted with some of these folks. And, and quite frankly, I would be surprised if, if, if a David Lee Roth or a, a Ozzy Osbourne would get that upset about a review from Indianapolis. But you've told me before that these stars have gotten upset. Yeah. I mean, my, you know, the story I always tell is about Phil Collins. So Phil Collins played with Genesis in uh, at the, the then, I'm not sure if it was the RCA Dome at that point. It might have been, uh, it, was, it was the And Hoosier you're a huge Dome. Genesis fan. I'm a huge Genesis fan. So they played at the Dome, and it was 1992, and I gave it a extremely critical review. I thought it was an awful show. And, 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 and great songs, uh, and, or they just mailed it in? Uh, I thought they mailed it in, and I thought it was a fairly terrible selection of of material but um so the next day i'm sitting at my desk at the paper and the phone rings i answer mark allen and i hear at the end mark allen phil collins and i said <laughs> i said hi phil because phil calls every day you know it's no no big deal and he said um am, am i allowed to use profanity on this show uh, if it's uh pertinent yes and, it and, is pertinent accurate historically it is both so <laughs> he said i just want to tell you that your review was the biggest pile of shit i've ever read and then he went on for a few minutes to to say things about me and about the review and so I listened to him for a bit and then I said, well, I'm sorry you felt that way because uh, you feel that way because um, I am a big Genesis fan. I own virtually every record you've ever made, which was, a, which was the truth. And I've seen every tour you've done since 1975. This was 1992 now. Mm -hmm. um, nobody wants to hear that, right? They want to hear, I hate you, and, <laughs> and that's why I wrote the negative review, right? So, so we had some argument about the, the review. Like the second song they played was No Son of Mine, which was on the album that uh, we can't, I think it was on We Can't Dance. And Hardly their best effort. Yes. And I said, uh, uh, and, and I criticized him in the review for sitting on the drum riser and singing during that song. And he said, I was acting. And I said, there's nothing in the lyric that would suggest sitting down 
and singing that song. Now, you know, if you want to sing, if, if you want to sit down, he's got that song, you know, sit down, sit mm-hmm. down is uh, right. Um, sit down during that song. <laughs> Don't sit down during the second song of the show. Um, so we went around for a while. He said uh, at the end, and we were probably on the phone five to 10 minutes. He said, uh, he said, well, I got to go. I got another pile of shit to do in Columbus tonight. <laughs> and I said, well, I hope you come back and I hope uh, I can give you a good review. So that's 1992. 1994, yeah, and, and to preface this, you have to remember there's no real internet or not much internet. So I get a call from a friend of mine who lives in California who I talk to a couple of times a year. And he said, did you give Genesis a bad review? <laughs> and I said, yeah, how'd you know that? And he said, because Phil Collins was on The Tonight Show talking about it. And I said, you're kidding. And <laughs> and he was. And I, you can look it up on YouTube, and this is, it's great. And he talks about the, the conversation that we had. Anyway, so my friend said, you know, he hears this. He says, I'm laying in bed. I'm listening to... Um, uh, I'm listening to Phil Collins or watching Phil Collins on there. And he's talking about this guy in Indianapolis. And I said, it's gotta be Mark. So, you know, <laughs> so that was me. So that's, uh, that's, uh, there was that. Then 1997, Phil Collins is going to come back here as a solo artist and he's going to play at market square arena. So his publicist called and said, uh, Phil, uh, would you like to talk to Phil? And I said, I'd love to talk to Phil. I can't believe he wants to talk to me, but Okay. So I'm, I'm sitting at home. It's scheduled. It's on a Saturday phone rings. I answer the phone, Mark Allen. He goes, Mark Allen, Phil Collins. I said, you didn't call to yell at me again, did you? And he goes, Oh, that's right. He said, I'm sorry about that. And I said, you have nothing to be sorry for. I said, first of all, it's amazing to me that you care, you know, (laughs) I mean, it was, it was phenomenal that he cared and I love Phil Collins and Phil Collins is an amazing talent. Okay. But the fact that he cared about the negative review, I always thought was amazing. So I said, I said, you have nothing to apologize for. I love that you called. And I said, and second, I have a story I'm going to tell for the rest of my life. And here it is. It's, it's 2019, 27 years later, and I'm still telling this story. Did you the know. conversation go okay? Yeah, the con- inf- interview was great. And, How was you his know, performance talk- that night? Uh, it got canceled. Uh, he, 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 Out of he, fear. Uh, uh, of your, <laughs> no, of no, your actually, H.L. Mencken-esque. Uh, 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 they, <laughs> they, they said that it was uh, a routing problem, which is usually a, a, a euphemism for we didn't sell enough tickets. Um, but whatever it was, you know, whatever reason, he didn't come back and he has not come back. And I, I, I think he's coming back on this uh, unretired tour. But, oh, really? Yeah, but I'm not sure. Was that, was that the, the most difficult? You know, we, we talked to Bill Benner a little bit. We talked to Jim Shella kind of about this in previous podcasts. And we're here with Mark Allen, longtime uh, music and TV critic for Indianapolis Star, who currently works at Butler University, uh, where Benner had to write a column that criticized someone he liked or Shella had to stick a microphone in the face of someone he liked, uh, including the host of Leaders and Legends, brought to you by <laughs> Veteran Strategies, and uh, ask them really tough questions. And so when you go see a band and you're a huge fan of the band, uh, to the example we just heard about Genesis, is it harder to fry them? Or is it like, damn it, 
despite the fact that I get paid to come here, I was really looking forward to just listening to this and you guys just didn't measure up. Uh, I, I'm, I feel like, uh, uh, you know, I, it, it's, I take it more personally because I care. I have a relationship with this band. Mm-hmm. You know, if I don't care about the band, then, you know, I can, uh, it, it's much easier to credit, you know, it was much easier to review Bon Jovi than it is to review a band that I like. If you had to choose one Bon Jovi song to listen to the rest of your life, because you're, that's your sentence, which would you choose? Um, uh, uh, kill me now. <laughs> there, no, no such song exists. Not even one of dead or alive, dead or alive, no. which is kind of the song no. that everybody holds no. on to. If you have to listen to no. Bon Jovi, Nothing. Um, Nothing. The guitarist on the Sting song uh, cover of Little Wing is Hiram Bullock. Oh, Hiram Bullock, who played in Letterman's band. Phenomenal uh, guitar player. If you haven't heard Sting's version of Little Wing, it's on the uh, Nothing Nothing Like the Sun album, I believe. It is an incredibly beautiful uh, cover of Hendrix's song, Little Wing. When you go to a concert, how much does their popularity affect you or do you just not care? I don't care. I never cared. So if you wrote a scathing review about poison when they're in their prime or, (laughs) or if they ever had, which I probably did uh, in it, you, do you know, like I used to, the late great Matt Tully, whom we love, uh, when he'd write about guns in his column, I'd send him a text and I would just go, you feeling masochistic today or, and he would write back, he'd always write back with something funny and witty. Like, yeah, I hadn't been yelled at in a while. So I thought I'd write about the second amendment, but when you're writing about a a popular band and for whatever reason you write a really tough review, um, do you just know that it's coming or did you think the stars that you didn't live in the age of the internet where they can just email you their column? I'm, I'm really happy about that. You know, I mean, email was just, I, I did the, that job from 1990 to 1998. So email was relatively new. I mean, people had it, but you know, not everybody had it. And, and your review couldn't go viral quite, quite as much. In fact, um, I wrote this, the, the, the single most negative review I ever wrote was a fish and I like fish, but this show was so terrible. I mean, just u- uniformly terrible. Every song was the same plotting, awful jam. It was mm-hmm. just, it was terrible. And I wrote this review where I, I, um, uh, said, you know, to, to paraphrase judge Judy, um, judge Judy would always say, don't, don't pee on my leg and tell me it's raining. Mm-hmm. I'd say, <laughs> I'd say, you know, fish, you could pee in their fans ears and tell them it's music and they would turn on their tape recorders so that they could <laughs> capture the moment. And so, um, I wrote that review and there are a, a couple of things happen. One is because there was no internet really to, to move it around so much fans would pass it along. And so like every month I would get a letter from an angry fish fan. And that happened for a year. You know, it's not like it is today where if Dave Lindquist, right, you know, who's been doing this job for 20 years now writes a negative review, they're going to pile on him. You know, it wasn't like that. It was like, it would be trickling in. Um, And the funny part about that one, that review too, is there's a documentary called Bittersweet Motel about fish, where fish reads my review. (laughs) 
And, and I, I, you know, I give all the credit in the world to Trey Anastasio, the guitar player. He said, he read it and he, he went to that particular line and he said, well, you know, he's right. Sometimes, you know, if you're going to take chances on stage, sometimes you're going to fail. And I thought, wow, that's a really, really thoughtful approach. Yeah, Cause you know, I mean, Larry Bird had bad shooting nights and yeah. you know, the world's best goaltender gives up five goals. I mean, sometimes you fail. I mean, you, when you, especially if you see a band either multiple times in one tour or multiple times over the years, you notice like, okay, they don't move around like they used to, or, you know, a lot of the songs that they used to play, they don't play anymore either because they can't or, but you're talking about bands from our era. You're 10 years older than I am that, I mean, people complain, for example, you mentioned Van Halen, they aren't doing anything. They're all in their sixties. Like, what are they supposed to be doing? I mean, Bill, I mean, Bill Wyman's retired, but a lot of these guys for that are still playing from, Moody Blues, or I mean, the Who's coming to town. How old's Pete Townsend? Yeah, he's got to be in his seventies. Has to be so. close to it. Name a group because I want to ask you about one other uh, musician encounter before we move on. Can you think of a group that you that surprised you? Like I'm going to go review this because you didn't really review albums per se. Is that correct? Sometimes. But a lot of it mostly concerts. Yeah, majority mostly, mostly concerts. Where but, you went you know. there to go? Oh my god! I guess I'll get this over with, and then you left going, okay, now that was surprisingly good one of the last concerts i covered was motley crew yay and i was and and i knew it was time to go i mean I, because i couldn't tell i thought it was good mm-hmm. and i couldn't tell <laughs> you know i'm i was, was just post vince neil uh no or had he no, come this back was, this was pretty much the end of mm-hmm. the early end of motley crew and mm-hmm. and um you know when there were there were bands that uh, you know, I was not a Pantera fan. I could barely get, I could, in fact, I couldn't get through a CD of Pantera, but I just thought that show, man, that was powerful. And, you know, there were, there were a lot of nights like that where just bands surprise you with what they could do or, you know, how they could relate to their fans on stage. Do you have another star encounter? Um, maybe one where he who happened to be from Indiana was <laughs> somewhat threatening or unhappy. Well, uh, you know, John Mellencamp and I had some moments and, uh, uh, again, surprised that they care. Like, yeah, well, you're I a mean, millionaire John, rock you could, star. John, you could understand. Cause this was his hometown paper sure. and, and stuff. And, and John, he said to me, he said, you know, I'll go on tour and I'll get, uh, uh, you know, I'll get 70 or 80 reviews and three of them are negative and yours is always one of them. <laughs> and it's like, well, I'm not sure that's true, but did you like him as an artist generally? Uh, I wasn't a huge fan and I'm, uh, although uh, ironically he played a couple of, I guess it was in December in Bloomington, he did a benefit and I went to see him and I thought he was real good. And I always thought he put on a good show. I mean, there were very terrific few. band. Oh God. Great. Terrific band. band. Yeah. And I think in Indiana, he got a protest. I don't know how many times I've seen him half a dozen, maybe, which, and yeah. there's probably people who've seen him 50 times, Bill. that yeah. every time I was like, he knows what the crowd wants to hear, especially here in Indiana. And he plays those songs and he plays them with energy. Yeah. He, he always did that. And he, he tried to work in songs that he wanted to play. And he realized that was a losing battle. A lot of times, you know, and so he would cut those songs, um, stuff. But I mean, I go back with John Mellencamp. I met John Mellencamp when I was in college. 
So it was about 1978 and he was coming through ball. It was in Boston and I knew his manager and his manager said, Hey, come and meet this guy. So I listened to the record and I thought, which, which one, nothing mattered. I'm not sure which one it was. Or just the John Cougar. It was a record where I said, and, uh, anyway, but I, but I went and I met him and he was so funny and so engaging and really interesting. And he told this great story about going to Phil Spector's house and, and, uh, cause they wanted Phil Spector to produce him. Sure. And, uh, but at any rate, uh, and, um, and I just thought, oh, this is such an interesting guy. It's too bad. I'm never going to hear of him again. Because I just figured this record's so bad, I'm you know it's really yeah he's mm-hmm. not going anywhere, and shows you what I know. So scarecrow, uh, uh huh. Oh no, it's way uh, before that. Yeah, but uh huh yeah. is probably my favorite of the yeah. Mullet Camp. I think he really started to get his sound there. The drumming was so powerful; it really kind of carries yeah, Kenny, almost all of his albums. Kenny's just uh, you know he's a force of nature, and there's a guy in his sixties, and you know does he play for the Who now? No. Who did no. he play for? He went to go play for someone else, and I forget who it was. Yeah, you'll find him. Super I mean, popular, though. He, you'll find him with, uh, I mean, I've seen him with Smashing Pumpkins, with John Fogarty, um, Melissa Etheridge. You know, he's out there. He just, um, you know. I, I was actually, when I was mentioning someone with a Hoosier connection, and maybe you can't tell the story, but maybe you can only tell it at Binkley's. <laughs> uh, Mr. Rose. Oh yeah, yeah. If you look at uh if you Google letters of note and Axel Rose, you'll find a letter that Axel wrote to me. Um it was <laughs> after so it was after a uh the Metallica Guns N' Roses Faith No More show at the the dome and basically I said, you know, Metallica kind of ate Guns N' Roses lunch. And uh, Axel was not happy with that. And so I'm sitting in the office and I can't remember if it was the next day or the day after that, but a fax comes in from Axel and you can see it on, on letters of note. And it's really funny. And I just, you know, that's, that's in a, your reply. That's a, uh, did I reply? I did reply. No, I know your reply. I'm asking <laughs> you to share your reply. Uh, I replied and I said, uh, um, what did I say to him? I think I said, uh, do you remember what I said to him? I can't. Some remember. sort of a uh, record. Yeah. Police. Uh, oh, I, I. That's right. I sent him back uh, a copy of his police record from when he was a kid. <laughs> he didn't. He didn't New respond York, to New that. New York Justice. Yeah, that's right. That's right. You know, I mean, look at. You know, I'm not a big guy. I'm not a physical person. If somebody was going to fight me, they were going to win. But I, I feel like I can hold my own in an argument. You know? <laughs> and that comes from growing up in New York, because everything is an argument where I in come New York. from. If you had to, as we wind up here before our uh, notorious and infamous uh, five question segment, put your rock band together. Keyboardist, drummer, singer, bassist, guitarist. If you could put your super group together from the 60s, 70s, and 80s, so your era, or 90s, when you're a critic for the star. Well, none of them would go together. I mean, they just wouldn't make any sense It's just an all-star team. Okay. Well, I mean, Smokey Robinson is my favorite vocalist. Of all time? Yeah. Mm -hmm. I think that's a voice. You know, if I... I used to work with a guy, and he would... He had this running list, and he would ask everybody... Uh, the bad, he would say, the bad news is your voice is gone. 
The good news is we can replace it with anybody's voice. Who would you replace it with? And to me, it was like smoky, you know, I want to sing like that, you know, um, as ABC, as ABC wrote. That's right. When Smokey sings, mm-hmm. I hear violins, and, yeah. <laughs> um, guitar player, guitar player. Um, you know, I, there are greater guitar players, but you know, I grew up an enormous yes fan. And so Steve Howe is probably my guitar player. I mean, there are definitely better players. I mean, Zappa would mm-hmm. probably be my other one. Uh, would you like to hear Zappa with for Smokey Robinson? <laughs> <laughs> Zappa probably would have been down with it. His, Actually, it would have been all his right. His son's a phenomenal been. guitar player. Yes, that's uh, right. His son is a phenomenal guitar Steve player. Steve Howe, probably, there are probably people who were faster, but I don't know that there was a guitarist who made fewer mistakes. He just mm-hmm. seemed like he could... I mean, to your point about Steve Vai earlier, you just stare at his fingers and you're like, how can you be that precise and that fast every single time you play these songs yeah. so effortlessly? effortlessly? Yeah. Okay. So are you going to choose a bassist from the same band? Well, probably because Chris Squire, I mean, I picked up the bass because I was so enamored with what Chris Squire did. And then I put down the bass because I (laughs) could not do that. I mean, how did he do that? You know, it was just incredible. Him or Antwistle, um, John Antwistle from the who would be there. And drummers, my all time favorite drummer is Dennis Dyke and, or uh, from, uh, the smithereens. Uh, there's never been a, a drummer, I think. I mean, there are, again, better drummers, probably, but there's never been a drummer who works in service of the song better than Dennis. If you watch him, there is no show to the guy. I sat behind him once at a mm-hmm. concert, um, and the sticks, I, you barely ever saw the sticks come up above his shoulders. He is playing. There's no showboating. The guy is just the most phenomenal drummer. I love the way he plays. I, if I could do anything as good as he plays drums, I would be really happy. Never heard of him, which yeah. just probably puts me in a bad category. Well, look at this. Go listen to the I mean, I've heard of the Smithereens, obviously. Yeah, I mean, just watch him play. It's it's Keyboardist? extraordinary. And keyboardist, geez, do I go back to Rick Wake? I was just going to say, you want to just complete well, your... Uh, Keith Emerson, I guess. You know, I mean, I just always thought he, you know, there was no better showman than Keith Emerson. Uh, when uh, when MTV came around, as we wind up, yeah. good for music, bad for music? Um, I mean, it's a staple of when I grew up, obviously, in the 80s. But, I mean, when it came around, were you like, wow, we can see these bands now? Because, you know... No YouTube, no MTV. You never saw these people play unless they went on, you know, midnight special or some sort of talk show. I remember, uh, <laughs> I remember, you know, because videos weren't that, I mean, you never saw videos before really. And I remember in about 19, I think it was 1979, uh, Blondie did a video for, for I'm, I can't remember which album it was. But I think they did a video, and they did videos for all the songs. And being uh, the great mind that I am, the having the ability to see into the future, and we were also going through an energy crisis, and I was thinking, well, this will be, you know, like this is what people will do. They won't go on tour anymore. They'll just release videos. <laughs> so it shows you how what I know. They did both. Um, yeah, they did both. But. You know, so MTV came along and I was just, I remember being mesmerized by that. You know, it's like, 
uh, it wasn't just the, you know, it was like the chance to see the bands, but also to see video techniques. I mean, mm-hmm. that were some extraordinary oh, things. Sure. So, well, the um, first computer anim- animation that people saw was in those videos, yeah. Dire Straits, Money for Nothing, but you didn't yeah. really see that out there uh, too much until, and they were highly expensive. No, I mean, and the only place I had seen anything, you know, I mean, like Pink Floyd, the first Pink Floyd concert I saw was 1975, and you know, they had animation that was light years ahead of what anybody else was doing. But you'd see them, uh, you know, so I just thought, this is the way it's going to be. But my, I remember my sisters and I would would sit in front of the TV and just watch MTV, and we were just like, you couldn't turn it off. And I've told my kids that. I'm like, you go home from school, and you turned on MTV, and you watched it all night, or it was playing in the background all night, and yeah. you were talking on the phone to your friend while – he or she was watching it all night. It was a cultural phenomenon, probably without parallel, I would say, until the internet. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, very quickly, most overrated band of all time. Overrated, like everyone loves them and they're terrible. Well, uh, according to Mark Allen. Not terrible, but I have never been a U2 fan and I've never been a Tom Petty fan. And uh, so I think it's a tie. I mean, it's not that they're terrible. They're both really good bands. I just never, they just never did it for me. It was interesting on YouTube. If you Google Pete Townsend, Led Zeppelin, there's a 45 second clip where Pete Townsend says, I don't like anything about them. I don't like any of their songs. I don't like any of their albums. He goes, I like them all personally. He goes, maybe it's just because they were bigger than we are, but I just never liked anything they've done. And you sit there and go like, you don't like, like you can't pick, trampled underfoot or yeah no, that's, graffiti or i mean that's surprising to me i know people who don't like led zeppelin for a variety of reasons including you know that they they took a lot of old blues songs and mm-hmm. and you know uh, kind of made them and they didn't even make them their own they just appropriated them let's say um but no i mean you two i saw you two when they played um was it i guess it was at market square or no it wasn't market square it was at the conseco maybe mm-hmm. when it was Conseco Fieldhouse. And I thought this is a band that radio has done exactly right. Every song that they played that was a radio hit, that was a pretty good song. And every song they played that was a, a deep cut, nothing. You know, I just did not hear anything in that. And Petty, you know, the Phenomenal songs, songwriter. Yeah, I mean, he wrote, he wrote some really good songs and he wrote a lot of stuff that, you know, I mean, I saw him live sometimes where he was really good and sometimes where I, I last time he played here i walked out so it was as a critic or as a fan as, as a fan as i a mean fan. I, I didn't go as a fan i went the smithereens were opening up and i wanted to see the smithereens and i stayed as long as i could stand which was <laughs> about an hour uh most underrated like this band doesn't get the credit it deserves oh, either God. because of talent or impact or I always thought the kinks were kind of underrated. Like they were phenomenally, uh, uh, seminal band in the sixties, whether it, I mean, obviously Van Halen's cover of you really got me is what, is what a lot of people know. Yeah. Kind of by association, but they seem like they kind of get lost a little bit. Yeah. The kinks are a good choice because nobody really pays attention, but you know, on the other hand, I, I, I mean, and the kinks were a good live band too. I saw them a few times. Um, you know, there are so many, underrated bands that that you just don't you know that you wouldn't know because they they never made it you know so there's there's, uh you know there was a band called uncle green 
Lige's Who? Uncle Green. <laughs> and I just loved that band. And I thought they were some of the great, you know, they wrote some of the best, catchiest, poppiest songs. And, uh, and nobody ever heard of them. They never got anywhere. So that's, that's the one that comes to mind. But I'm sure I could go through um, you know, my collection and find you a lot of bands <laughs> that, that no one's ever heard of. We've reached the five questions segment of Leaders and Legends presented by Veteran Strategies. We're here with Mark Allen, longtime journalist in the Indianapolis area. Uh, we end all the podcasts with the same five questions. Okay. So what was your first car that you bought? that I bought. It was a, a Chevy Citation. Um, I think that was quite the chick magnet car. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. But, uh, you know, it was, it was, I think it was $6,300. So that was, <laughs> and it was 1980 and that was what I could afford. That sounds about right. Yeah. Speaking of the energy crisis you mentioned earlier. Yeah. Um, well, I, I hate to ask this question of you because it's been so much. A part I am of not a we, car guy, by the way. I mean, I just, a, a car is transportation and transportation. We, leaders only. and legends. We're not judgmental. Okay. Thank we don't you. judge. Good. But actually the second question in our five questions is particularly apropos. Uh, what was your first concert? Uh, a group called Diodato, D-E-O-D-A-T-O. And that was a guy's name. And at the time uh, they had a hit with, um, a, uh, a synthesizer version of the theme to the 2001 a space oddity and that was uh, odyssey and that was a um uh, a, a radio hit and i was 14 years old so we went <laughs> that'll be hard to top for obscurity yeah uh, but interestingly on that bill was freddie hubbard he was one of the opening acts so it's weird, my connections to Indianapolis, you know, like uh, Freddie Hubbard from Indianapolis was, was, um, I think the third on that bill. There were like, it was Stanley Turrentine, Eric Gale, um, Freddie Hubbard and Diodato. And, uh, so that was like my Indianapolis connection. And then, you know, I was a huge Letterman fan. And so, sure. and so long before I was in Indianapolis, I was connecting with Indianapolis. And I imagine, and we didn't get a chance to talk about how much Indianapolis has changed just since oh, you got God, here. Yeah, it's, it's um, crazy. If you could recommend one book to anyone to read, which book? Um, my favorite book is The Boys on the Bus by Tim Krause. Yeah. And it's about uh, the, the press corps covering the 1972 presidential campaign. And um, it's part of the reason that I wanted to be a reporter. I read that book and I'm just like, I want to be one of these guys. When it was certainly a book that, that portrayed the lighter side of being a reporter. Yeah. Yeah. But I learned a lot about journalism. Humanized them would be the word maybe. Yeah. And, and explain them why they thought that the way they did and why they acted the way they did and why they were, they wrote the way they did. What, if you could witness any, event in history be there when it happened which event would you choose if you want to confine it just to music we could live with that but if you wanted to go back a little further um well you know my first thought is i would have loved to have seen a beatles concert that would have been nice but anything in history um wow 
uh, you know, um, do I get to come back or do I have to live there? <laughs> no, you just get to witness it. Yeah, I'd like, uh, you know, I'd like to see what it was like when Christ was around. You know, I'm not a religious person, but I just think. Sermon on the Mount, know, perhaps? Eh, that'd be fine. You know, but you could I, live with that. I could, sure, sure. <laughs> and do you have the power to send me there, Mister? Uh, it's possible <laughs> under the new regime. It's possible. And if you could have dinner with anyone in the world right now, tonight, who would you choose? So it's somebody who's alive. Mm-hmm. Oh, then uh, I think I, I would like to have dinner with Paul McCartney, not because I'm a huge Beatles fan or because he's my favorite or anything like that, but you watch that guy. And he radiates joy. And I just wonder about that. What's that like to be where everybody who's around you is happy? They're happy to be in your presence. And there's millions of people listening to your music right now who are happy. Yeah, but but I mean, you watch. If, if, if Did you see that James Corden thing mm-hmm. that he did? How can you not be happy? How can you not watch that and go, this is the greatest thing ever? This guy... Everywhere he goes, he makes people happy. And I just want to, I'd like to bask in that for an hour. Certainly know? one of the five most famous people in the world, would you think? Yeah, I would, I would guess so. I would guess so. I mean, I don't know that physically people would recognize him now so as much because, you know, he's mm-hmm. older. But, I mean, he looks substantially the same. But, you know, and if he was walking down the street, I don't know if you'd notice necessarily. But, yeah, I would guess he probably is. We are thrilled to have you. Thank you for Thanks. making time. Yeah. Lots we discussed a lot, but we actually uh, left out a little bit. So maybe we can have you back once this hits the worldwide uh, web and and we start to have more conversations. There were lots of questions I didn't get to ask you. Stay away from politics uh, <laughs> for the for the benefit of everybody. And uh, but you are and always have been since I've met you a terrific, terrific, very generous, very kind friend, Mark. And we appreciate you being on Leaders and Legends today. Thanks. It was great. It was a lot of fun. Thank you very much for listening to Leaders and Legends, brought to you by Veteran Strategies Incorporated. If you want to contact us about this program or our menu of public relations services, please send us an email at robert at veteranstrategies.com. That's robert at veteranstrategies.com. Thank you.